Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So we have discussed you know, metabolic health and, and the benefits of carbohydrate restriction um, a lot, it, it seems like, at least over the past couple of months. Um, does it seem that way to you? Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that just me? Well, it kind of comes into play for so many different things. Yeah, it, you're, you're exactly right. And I, our, I would think our, our listeners may be wondering why we're going back to that that subject again. So um, I think we need to maybe put it in perspective. Um, you know, what what piqued our interest was were, were a couple of new studies that we'll talk about uh, that kind of really put an exclamation point on the uh, advantages of uh, restricting carbohydrates, mm -hmm. particularly if you're diabetic or trying to lose weight. Right. Sure. Um, so, and and you know these the the results really really uh, capture our attention. Yeah, you could you, they're almost I don't want to say miraculous, but they're pretty pretty uh, pretty uh, in a, attention grabbing. Uh, yeah. And I think and and they they definitely got some press attention. So I'm sure people have, have um, some interest and some questions. So, um, but but I think you know before we kind of dive into those um, I think we need to kind of maybe go back and say okay why is this such an important subject so kind of kick it over to you to kind of put that in perspective yeah so I mean we have said so many times in the past that and you know people understand this that um, being overweight or obese um, contributes to so many chronic diseases um, and increases your risk of other things like diabetes, heart disease, um, high blood pressure, um, all those things that kind of get combined into uh, the, the five characteristics of metabolic syndrome. So there's the constant kind of need to figure out what's the best lifestyle as far as diet and exercise goes, what's the you know most optimal um, way to kind of um, manage your weight in a healthy way. Um, and it, it oftentimes comes back to carbohydrate restriction. But I do want to say that you don't have to, that's not like the one, the only, this is not the only way um, to lead a healthy lifestyle. Um, because there's a lot of proponents to, you know, um, the, the healthy complex carbohydrate lifestyle. Mm -hmm. What we're focusing on here has a lot to do with low carbohydrate or carbohydrate restriction in the context of diabetes and, and people with diabetes. Um, again, you don't have to completely cut out your carbohydrates, um, but it is, as we'll talk about, um, a, a huge way to kind of move the needle. But as far as the, the problem and why this is important, um, there was a study 
done at Chapel Hill in 2018, um, which estimated that only 12% of U.S. adults are metabolically healthy, which is just a staggering <laughs> number. Um, so, you know, meaning 88% of U.S. adults would fall in the metabolically unhealthy category. Um, to, and, to, to some extent or another. Yeah. And what they defined as metabolically healthy or unhealthy, because you think like, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, it just means the absence of the five characteristics of metabolic syndrome. So to be considered metabolically healthy, they um, considered it to be the absence of all five of these um, characteristics. So the first one being weight circumference, I mean, waist circumference um, being below 102 centimeters, which is about 40 inches for men and below 88 centimeters or 34.6 inches for women. Um, weight circum waist circumference is not something that we often measure. It's not something that I routinely measure in the office. Um, it is something that would come up on people's forms all the time when they needed to get their like, quote unquote, annual physical checked off for their um jobs mm -hmm. insurance benefits so like you get points or you get money back or whatever if you go for your physical and have all this stuff filled out and almost always they wanted waist circumference because of this because of these you know characteristics of metabolic syndrome um so we'd have to like break out the measuring tape and it's kind of an awkward thing um but anyways that's one of them because you want your waist circumference um you know to be a below a certain measurement because it's a it is, is linked and tied to um, the effects of metabolic syndrome. Well, and, um, and is that specifically um, concerned with, with visceral fat mm -hmm. uh, accumulation? Right. It's kind of like a crude measurement of, right. of that. Um, and then the next one, fasting blood sugar below 100. That's the kind of benchmark when you um, get your fasting glucose or fasting blood sugar to screen for diabetes or prediabetes. You want to be less than 100 blood pressure below 120 over 80, triglycerides below 150. And that, I'll go back, that blood pressure below 120 over 80 is kind of always in flux. Um, there's some guidelines that will say less than 140 over 90. So we'll say somewhere between under 140 over 90 and 120 over 80. I like that, but that also is is untreated you know, so, so if you were if you were getting treatment for blood pressure and your blood pressure was 120 over 80, you'd, you'd still kind of be considered um, Metabo and having at least one characteristic of metabolic syndrome. Right. So that's just yeah. baseline um, triglycerides below 150 and then HDL or your good cholesterol being greater than or equal to 40 for men um, and 50 for women. That might be backwards. I'm wondering if that's backwards. Um, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think I remember. Higher, being, yeah. Women's uh, are at baseline for, higher. Yeah. But so like these five characteristics are essentially having your weight, um, and visceral fat under control, not being diabetic or pre-diabetic, not having high blood pressure, not having high cholesterol, um, and having good, good cholesterol. So only 12% of the U S population, um, can, are living, this a way where they are absent, where there's an absence of these five things, which is kind of, you know, impressive to think about. Um, well, that's nine. So, so one out of 10 people walking down the road has, has, has none of these kind of warning signs of, of metabolic right. syndrome. And then about a quarter of the U S uh, of U S adults have metabolic syndrome, which 
to have to be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, it's having three of the five, at least three of the five. So 25% of adults actually meet the criteria for full-blown metabolic syndrome with at least three of those five things. Um, and then from 1999 to 2000 through 2017 to 2018, the U.S. prevalence of obesity, which is a BMI greater than 30, increased from... 30.5% to 42.4%. So 42.4% of people um, are in, in the U.S., adults in the U.S. are in the obese category. And then the prevalence of severe obesity, which is a BMI greater than 40, increased from 4.7% to 9.2%. So almost 10% of people um, so one out of 10 people would be considered severely obese. And I don't love the BMI index. It's, it, again, it's a very um, kind of generalized and crude way to um, measure, measure somebody's, um, if they have, you know, if they weigh the right amount. Doesn't take into consideration muscle mass. So if you are, if you have a ton of muscle and you're super lean, um, then you are probably going to fall in an overweight obese or obese category because it's strictly based on weight and you know we we know that given the same density um or the same volume of either fat or muscle muscle is going to weigh more so but directionally i think it's it, it is accurate to say that that the u.s adult population has seen mm -hmm. um you know in the past let's say 20 years um that this was looking at marked increase in um, in overweight and obese. Absolutely. I mean, there's going to be those exceptions here and there, but in general, um, definitely seen that gradual rise. And it's not just in adults, it's in kids too, um, unfortunately. When we, and I mean, it, this often starts unhealthy and overweight adults usually, um, it usually starts in, in childhood. Um, but then as of 2018, 34.2 million people of all ages in the U.S., um, which is about 10 and a half percent of the U.S. population had diabetes and 88 million adults or about 35 percent had prediabetes. So just a, a crazy number of people with um, insulin resistance and difficulty kind of um, maintaining a healthy blood sugar. And I mean, we've talked before about, you know, the, the downhill effects of not being insulin sensitive. Right, exactly, um, and and also we've talked about the fact that that um, you know having um, kind of some some or all of those characteristics of metabolic syndrome really set you up um, to um, be at a disadvantage when it comes to the, the the what I call the kind of the big three of of um, aging, um, uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and, and Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, they're, 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 you know, you can't say it's, it's kind of causally, you know, that, that being overweight is causing any right. one of those three, but it's contributing to them and it's making them worse in people that, you know, that, that, that have those conditions. Right. Pretty, pretty clearly. So, yeah. so, so I think we definitely, again, once again, put an exclamation point on the importance of the subject in general. So let's take a look at those of those studies um, that we we're talking about. The first one comes from um, a study in England, um, and it's a it's a a study of this um, 
primary care practice in England. Uh, and it, it's a large primary care practice. It had almost 10,000 patients. So that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty good size. It's not, yeah. you know, a couple hundred or, or what have you. And um, they, what they did was, was um, give advice on a lower carbohydrate diet, you know, the, the advantages of it and how to, you know, and, and how to put it into action. Um, and, and it was given to patients with a newly diagnosed or pre-existing type two diabetes or pre-diabetes. And do you want to, I know we've talked about in the past, but maybe for a new listener, what, what's the definition of the kind of formal definition of pre-diabetes and diabetes? Um, so this all kind of comes back to your blood glucose or blood sugar control. Um, but you want to have, um, a normal fasting blood sugar, which is less than a hundred and a normal A1C. Um, so you want to have your A1C be below 5.7. Um, your A1C is a measure of your glycolated hemoglobin and glycolated, um, just means hemoglobin with, um, glucose attached. So that's going to increase as you have more blood sugar sitting around in your, or more sugar sitting around in your blood. Um, so it measures kind of like a three month average of, um, your blood sugar. So from, um, when you, when you're checking your A1C, um, ideally you follow the normal range and you're less than 5.7. Pre-diabetes is from 5.7 to 6.5. Um, and then once you hit 6.5 or greater, that's diagnostic for diabetes. And there's also numbers for fasting blood sugar um, as well. But we pretty much, um, it's pretty much kind of standard now to go off of the A1C. A1C, yeah. Um, so what they, what they did with, these, uh, with their patients is they provided one-on-one consultations as well as group consultations um, to help their patients better understand um, glycemic consequences of their dietary choices. Um, and, and when we say glycemic consequences, it's, it's basically the impact on their blood sugar levels right. from, their, from their food choices, particularly focusing on sugar, carbs, and foods with a higher glycemic index. So again, um, we talked about glycemic index in the past. So if people are kind of unfamiliar with that concept, you definitely should um, Google it and, and be, you know, have a, have a familiarity with the concept of it. And generally where foods kind of fall in, in, into that because, um, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to know that a white potato has a glycemic index of X versus a, you know, piece of white bread versus mm-hmm. an apple versus a piece of, you know, steak, whatever. But you ought to know that you ought to know that, that bread, pasta, right, rice. particularly white, right, rice, mm-hmm. um, white potatoes are going to have higher levels, higher glycemic indexes. Um, and, and, and pretty good loads too. Um, a food like watermelon would have a high glycemic index because it, it'll, it'll impact your blood sugar pretty quickly, but a relatively low glycemic load because a lot of that um, volume water. in a watermelon is water. Right. So, so, so just, uh, it, it's, it's definitely helpful. Um, and, and so in, in terms of the results, so they, they started the study in 2013, finished it in 2019. Um, and uh, so 128 um, of the practice population with type 2 diabetes and 71 people with prediabetes opted to follow this lower carbohydrate diet. So, so you know, we always are within these studies are looking for potential kind of 
problems with the study itself. So one potential issue with this is they're taking it at face value that the people who say they opted into that lower carbohydrate diet actually did Mm-hmm. you know, follow through with that, but right. that being as, uh, as it may, and, and they're saying they did that for at least two years, let's say 23 months uh, here. Um, and then, so for patients with type two diabetes, they saw a median weight drop. Um, and this is in kilos from 99.7 to 91.4. So, uh, understand a kilo is 2.2 pounds. So pretty significant weight loss over yep. a two year period. Um, and their HbA1c, which is that that um, you know kind of measure, dropped from 65.5 to 48. Yeah. So very significant. Um, and for patients with prediabetes, their HbA1c dropped from 44 to 39. So somewhat less, but but they were less sick, if you will. Right. Than 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 the obviously the people with with diabetes. Um, and, and what was really amazing and kind of caught my eye was the, the fact that um, com- complete type 2 diabetes remission um, without the use of drugs occurred in half of the participants. Yeah. Uh, so so that that is, I think, an amazing um, an amazing result that half of the people with type 2 diabetes that is that, that are in, in, in you're typically treating type 2 diabetes with you know, could be, could be insulin injections, could be a bunch of other drugs, right? Yeah. Um, oral medications, insulin, all depends on, you know, how high their A1C is and, you know. And, and in the pre-diabetes population, 93%, almost everyone attained a normal A1C level. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's um, very impressive. It, it, it really is. And, and I tell you, I've got a, I've got a, a friend who, um, you know, maybe less than a year ago, I started talking about this stuff with and kind of pointing him in the direction of some podcasts that were interesting. Um, and, and his results were the same, uh, were in the same vein right. that yep. he's lost, I don't know, 20 pounds over the past six months. He's gone from needing regular insulin uh, injections to needing, needing none. And he's not even pre-diabetic based upon that A1C reading. Right. Just, just amazing. And, and, you know, it kind of just, there's a couple things like it's for us, I mean, we kind of, you know, generally stick to a pretty healthy diet, but you'd be so surprised how crappy some people's diets are. Um, and th- that they might not even realize how bad they are. And some people do. Sometimes there's like, no, I, my diet is absolutely crap. Um, so there's those people. But then there's other people who are like, no, it's not that bad. And you really sit down and talk about it. It's like, well, it's actually is pretty, pretty poor. You're going to be able to make dramatic, you know, movements to this kind of stuff if you just do X, Y, Z. Um, so those are the people where, you know, it takes their own personal motivation for sure. But you can see dramatic changes because they're just used to such a, um, a poor diet. And once they change it, their body just can completely adapt. Um, so. well, and, and what was surprising to me is, so, so what, so one of the, one of the assumptions, I guess, behind the study in England is that prior to the, the study being done, these people really weren't getting this sort of, inf- this low carb kind of diet information. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the norm. 
that well, even with people with pre-diabetes and diabetes, like again, my friend was not getting the, the that level of in-depth, you know, both um, information and um, what I want to say uh, uh, prescription for a dietary change that you would think someone in that condition would, right. would um, should have. So a few things there that comes down to time. Um, so I am sure sometimes we, um, assume that people know more than they do. So that's one thing. Um, the next thing is that a lot of physicians, um, would love to be able to sit down and have a 30 minute conversation with their patient about diet, um, and exercise and that kind of stuff. But we just don't have the time. Um, so a lot of times people get referred to nutrition, diabetic nutrition educators and diabetes education and because they're fantastic. And when you have a doctor who's in a you know corporate medicine job where they have to see 25 people a day, um, you know, then it's like you, you just you don't have time to be the one who sits there and does it. So you refer um, and you refer to the diabetes um, educators. And I would guess. 20% of the time the patient goes. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. so, yeah. and yeah. because it's another step, it's another place to go. It's another step in the process. Whereas if you're sitting there at the same time, talking to your patient, you know, in real time, then you, you know, you'll, you'll get so much further with it, but. Yeah. So is it, I, I have questions. Is it, it, would it be normal practice to, refer someone to a nutritionist who has either prediabetes or, or, or full-blown diabetes? Um, yeah, it depends. I mean, so obviously now in my practice, I wouldn't because we could sit down and talk for an it, hour. And you can it, cover right? that subject. I yeah, guess. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now there is probably an inadequate amount of nutrition training in medical school, um, given how much of an impact it has. Um, but I bet that's changing. I mean, it's been a several years since I've been in medical school. So I'm sure that that education is, is changing, but, you know, we also are physicians and we are constantly um, doing continuing education. So for primary care and endocrinology and, you know, that sort of thing, I, I think most doctors understand enough about nutrition to be able to talk to their patients about it. But if you don't have the time because someone else is dictating, you know, what you need to see in a day and all that stuff that we've talked about before. It's like, you, you have to, re you just have to refer. Um, and the diabetes educators are fantastic, but the person has to go. The person has to show up. Show up. Yeah. True enough. True enough. So, so take us through this, this second um, study, which, which had somewhat similar results, but it was, was performed in, 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 in a different way. I think um, that is, is pretty interesting. Yeah. So the next study, um, was done to assess the effects of an alternative approach to type two diabetes prevention. So this is to prevent um, becoming a type two diabetic. And in this particular study, there were 96 patients with prediabetes. Um, so again, that's, that's where your A1C is about 5.7 or higher, but you haven't quite made it to 6.5 where you'd be diagnosed with type two. So that's the goal. That's why we, that's why we screen people um, to look for prediabetes because we want to keep you, if before we just were able to diagnose 
diabetes are not diabetic. Um, and then we realized like, okay, well we can catch this early and make interventions there before we ever get to um, diagnosing people with diabetes. So 96 patients, pre-diabetics, they were um, age 52 plus or minus 10 um, years and 80% of them were female. BMI average was um, 39.2 and they received continuous remote care interventions focused on reducing hyperglycemia through carbohydrate restriction nutrition therapy. So they were given, um, their continuous intervention was through carbohydrate, carbohydrate restriction um, nutrition counseling, essentially, like a nutritionist, mm-hmm. um, for two years um, in a single arm perspective. So looking forward, longitudinal study. Um, and the two-year retention rate was 75%, which is good. I mean, two years going through this um, significantly restricted diet. Yeah, that's yeah, and and following a therapy nutrition, following the nutrition therapy, um, is pretty good. So seventy-two out of the ninety-six participants stayed in that two-year study, and then the results showed that fifty-one percent of the participants met carbohydrate restriction goals as assessed by blood beta hydroxybutyrate concentrations. So um, essentially, what that's doing is how are we able to determine that these patients are actually following what we're saying instead of just telling us that they are, because that would not be a very strong study to just say, well, they said that they were. Well, and um, that was so, the, that, that's right. And that's, that's the kind of weakness in that prior study we talked mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Yeah. So what they did here was measure beta hydroxybutyrate um, concentrations, which is kind of associated. It's like, it's a ketone. So when you're, as people kind of now know, cause it's, kind of trendy, um, when you decrease your carbohydrates enough, your body has to make and utilize your fatty acids and makes ketones um, in order to use that as a fuel source. So it's essentially like measuring if you're in ketosis. So um, they were able to make sure that these people were following and meeting their restriction, carbohydrate restriction goals by making sure they had ketones in their blood. Um, and, and not all the time. It's interesting, but no. it's it, for at least a third of the Right, because you don't, because this is not, the study was not looking at um, a, a keto diet. The keto mm-hmm. diet, right, because we, you know, that's not what they were trying to to do. There's, there's plenty of problems with the quote-unquote keto diet, and the goal is not to have people never eat carbohydrates. You can eat carbohydrates. There's good fiber. There are so many things and so many starchy vegetables, you know, that you should eat, but you want to restrict it enough so that in this case, a third of the time you are, um, you are forming those ketones because there's not a lot of free carbohydrate around to utilize. So 51% met those goals when measuring for those ketones one for more than one third of the measurements. Um, and then estimated cumulative incidence of normal glycemia, which is a normal blood sugar um, and type two diabetes. So normal glycemia is an A1C under 5.7 without medication. Um, and type two diabetes is an A1C greater than 6.5. Um, so at two years, 52.3% and 3%. So 52.3% had normal glycemia. um, And 
let's see, the prevalence. Only 3% of, had the type 2 diabetes. Right. So the prevalence um, of metabolic syndrome, class 2 or greater obesity, and hepatic steatosis significantly decreased at two years. So following this diet, not only were 52% of people normal glycemic or had completely normal blood sugars, but the prevalence of overall metabolic syndrome, um, obesity, and then liver disease, fatty liver disease, um, significantly decreased at the two-year mark. So it helps significantly across the board for all these kind of um, markers of metabolic syndrome. Because because you would you would suspect that, and I don't know what the what the the stats are, but I'm sure they're out there that after two years of looking at a at a pre-diabetic population um, that that wasn't um, you know kind of on, on a carbohydrate restricted diet, you'd have many more than three um, oh, percent progressing sure. to to diabetes. Absolutely, yes, and I can't say what the you know exact percentages would be either, but um, without some pretty um, significant intervention. If you have prediabetes, it's only a matter of time. Yeah. So, and that's the hard part you, cause you need to be able to explain this to patients and you need to be able to educate them. But in order to educate them, you have to also understand what their baseline is and what they're living, kind of where they're living as far as their diet is concerned. Um, and then you have to work on interventions and then you have to keep checking in on those interventions and helping and, and, you know, changing the plan around a little bit. And all of that stuff takes time that but, primary but the, care doctors do not have in general, traditional practice. Just so. And sad. I would, so, so, uh, and I would point our listeners who are, who haven't caught our episode on the, um, it, relative advantages of uh, direct primary care to, to listen to that. I, I forget the, the, the episode number, but it was several months ago um, as you were transitioning from, let's say, corporate primary care to, to direct yeah. primary care, uh, because that's, that's where that's where it's at. I think, I think the other big news here is that, you know, this so there's a, clearly has been an epidemic of, um, of obesity in developed nations and, and the related, um, you know, diabetes and, and related other chronic conditions. So, and, and just the, the costs of that are staggering, both in terms of the, um, you know, direct dollar costs, as well as quality of life costs for, for all those folks. And, and, and the big news I think there is, is, is these studies and, and others, these aren't the only ones are, are increasingly pointing out that there's a clear path to, to dealing with this that is that is not dependent upon medications right right and and it's and but as you said it it takes time and effort and I, I still don't think like you don't you don't get you you would think that uh, that this area is ripe for kind of public service messages along the lines of don't smoke Right. You know, but you don't, but you don't, you don't see those um, types of of messaging out there, partly because there, I think we need to acknowledge a little bit, there still is some level of controversy to this, maybe. To what in particular? Well, to to that, that the way to treat prediabetes and diabetes, um, if not, you know, weight control in general is limiting carbohydrates. I don't think that there's much controversy around that um, when it comes to diabetes and prediabetes at, at all. Um, what it, what I think it gets gets bolted into is that black and white of 
eat zero carbs or yeah. or yeah. else kind of thing. And that's not and that's not the message of even this podcast. Like you just want to restrict carbs, especially processed carbs, especially the refined sugars and flours, um, especially white rice and um, breads and pastas. Um, but you don't have to because if you start looking it up, like how do I eliminate all carbohydrates from my diet? It's like so many things because so many vegetables have some carbohydrates in them. And that's not the, the goal is not to cut out carbohydrates completely. I think the controversy comes in when people start boasting about the keto diet, you know, right. but that has its right. own bag of problems. And then well, if and, you and take... It, it, if you take the, the, diabetes aside um, and you're not diabetic and you're trying to look at the best diet for weight loss purposes to get to a healthy weight, it does, you can, you don't have to restrict carbohydrates. You do not have to. You just have to be in a calorie deficit. Now, to do that in a healthy way nutritionally, you should limit processed foods, of course, but you do not have to focus on eating a significant carbohydrate restricted diet in order to lose weight. You know, I think that's where the controversy comes in. Right. But I would say uh, that, or would you agree that it's, it's easier, it's going to be easier to lose weight on a carbohydrate restricted diet, primarily because you've, you're, you've, you've trained or you are training your body to burn fat for fuel. Um, And if, if you're not um, kind of restricting the, the 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 content of what you eat then you're you could have um still elevated levels to some extent of insulin and and it makes that that weight loss tougher let's say because you're hungrier um um uh, you know yes and no i think that and maybe that's the controversy part yeah i think there's studies out there to prove that you can lose weight um at similar rates on a carbohydrate restricted or not carbohydrate restricted diet at the same calorie deficit. So that's the problem that people have around all of the carbohydrate shaming um, is that carbohydrates are not, all carbohydrates are not the enemy. Certain carbohydrates are, yes. And, And this is about lifestyle changes. So are you going to eliminate and be significantly reducing your carbohydrates for the rest of your life? Um, Or are you going to do it for X amount of time? And then you're going to reintroduce healthy carbohydrates again at a reasonable amount, because that's probably what people are going to fall back to and then gain weight because carbohydrates take on a lot more water. And, you know, so it's all about what you can maintain. If you can be consistent and maintain it on a very low carbohydrate diet, fantastic. If you, if you get into your calorie deficit and can lose weight without dramatically cutting your carbohydrates, then fine. If you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, then you definitely want to watch the carbohydrate. Yep. And I think we, we, we'd agree that, that people should become, you know, should, should try to become educated on some of this stuff at the, at the very least to understand what is a, um, processed carbohydrate, you know, and, 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 and how to read a food label. And by the way, mm-hmm. another plug for a prior podcast we, we did on, on specifically that how to read a food label. Right. Yep. Be- because it's not necessarily self-evident and is a, just a bunch of, of kind of almost deceptive marketing going on around, you know, stuff that is purported to be, you know, health food or low fat or whatever that is just, just, highly processed 
foods that are that that you shouldn't be eating. Right. Yep. Gotcha. And I, and we'll just do one more and kind of reminder to folks that that um, really there are three levers that that you can you can pull on in terms of in, in, in order to either, you know, manage your weight or, or your risk for metabolic syndrome uh, in terms of our food intake. They're, they're what we eat. So we, it's what we've been talking about in this, in this uh, podcast. Uh, it's when we eat. So it's that you know, concept of, of intermittent fasting, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, and then how much we eat that, that right. you know, creating a calorie deficit or calorie surplus. And, and I think, you know, in, in my kind of just general rough um, the kind of calculus. It's if we're not pulling on any of those levers, if we're just letting it rip, we're going to gain weight, and yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna go down that slippery slope to metabolic syndrome. If we pull on one pretty pretty well, we'll we, we can we can stay steady. Pull on two, we're going to make improvements. Pull on three, then you're really going to see dramatic changes. Yeah, so, and but but it's tough to pull on two or three of those levers for Absolutely. an extended period of time. Right. If it was easy, then. Yeah. No one and you can it. mix them up. You can, you can say, okay, for the next month, I'm going to really watch what I eat, um, but I'm not going to intermittent fast and I'm not going to try to control how much, you know, but I'm, I'm yeah. going to really eat clean versus next month and next quarter. I'm going to intermittent fast, but um, I'm not going to be quite as restrictive about what or, or how much. So yeah. you right. can, Make it make it interesting and see and and for some folks you know um, pulling one of those three levers versus the two other ones is easier or di more difficult. Right. So. Yep. It's got to work for you. Exactly. Okay, Doc. Well, I think we've uh, covered this subject, and uh, maybe we'll stay off the uh, the, the <laughs> metabolic <laughs> uh, subject for in the future. I think we're I think we're due for maybe something. Um, something very different. So I'll be, I'll be looking for an appropriate uh, next podcast subject for us. That sounds good. Okay. Well, you have a great rest of the day. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening. You can visit the doctorandad.com. That's spelled T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for show notes to any of our podcasts, as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.